Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Welcome, everybody. My name is Duncan Green. I'm Professor in Practice in the Department of International Development, and I'm chairing tonight's discussion. This is the last of the term's lectures, and we kick off again after Christmas on the 21st of January with Tasneem Esop and Tim Gore, who will be discussing outcomes of COP26, remember that, uh, in Glasgow, and where next on climate. And then the week after, on the 28th of January, Irungu Houghton and Chaloka Bayani will be discussing human rights organizing in Africa during a global pandemic, trends and insights. So we've got some great light, we've got some great lectures coming back after the new year, by which time we've all had a good rest and we'll be full of energy. So today's topic on the International Day for Persons with Disabilities is disability development rights and inclusion. And we have two amazing speakers and they have quite impressive CVs. So you're gonna to have to bear with me a little bit because I wanna give you the full sense of where these two people have, have come from. So the first speaker will be Musharraf Hussain, who is the founding director of Global Inclusion Consulting, a consultancy committed to advancing disability, diversity, and inclusion in international development. Before that, he was director of global policy at Ad International, uh, a global DPO develop, uh, disabled persons organization uh, network. Before moving to the UK in 2014, he led Ad's country program for 20 years. Musharraf was born and brought up in Bangladesh. He was denied jobs in the civil service of Bangladesh because of his disability acquired due to polio at age three, but he didn't give up. He joined Ad International and changed the discriminatory civil service policy working with other human rights activists and organizations. Among his many achievements in Bangladesh, he organized people with disabilities to form a national network and grassroots disability rights movement of 200 organizations supporting people with disabilities in rural areas and urban slums across Bangladesh and fighting nationally to reduce discrimination and inequality. He played an instrumental role in mobilizing political commitment to realizing the rights of persons with disabilities, formulating disability law and relevant policies and engaging organizations of persons with disabilities in policy discussions. And he's done that at an international level as an internationally recognized influencer. He's consulted and influenced the United Nations, the British Commonwealth, and the House of Commons on disability-inclusive policies. As part of a broader disability movement, he took part in the negotiations which included disability in the Sustainable Development Goals. Musharraf believes that disability is an issue of both the Global South and Global North, as people with disabilities face discrimination and exclusion everywhere, including in the UK. And the intersection of disability with gender, race, and ethnicity exacerbates their vulnerability. But he is concerned that organizations of persons with disabilities are losing space more now than before. 
So welcome, Musharraf. Our second speaker is uh, an LSE alum, Tehas Clark. She's an Ethiopian-American disability rights change leader in the context of humanitarian interventions. Her work is shaped by her experiences as, as a disabled youth, where she was denied access to education, and by Amartya Sen's entitlement theory. Her vision was to use data to strengthen the accountability of mainstream NGOs and donors to serve and respect the human rights of disabled Ethiopians. After completing her MSc in Development Management at the London School of Economics, shout out for the MSc, she rolled out Ethiopia's first disability assessment of USAID's largest bilateral emergency food aid program in the world, the Joint Emergency Operation. Ter has developed systems to track disability disaggregated data during household surveys in the Oromia and Amhara regions. She also collaborated with the government, NGOs, US Embassy and disabled people's organizations to establish employment opportunities for people with disabilities. She has worked closely with the US Ambassador's Office to establish partners with disabled people's organizations to ensure their voices are represented in US foreign policy. Her advocacy at the US Embassy resulted in policy changes to USAID's vocational educational programs, and she currently works for the International Organization of Migration. So welcome to Musharraf and Terhas. Uh, Musharraf, I think you're going first. Um, the floor is yours. Okay, uh, thank you, Duncan. Uh, it's a pleasure, and I feel proud to be with you and uh, your colleagues of um, LSE, as well as, uh, as well as the other faculties and students who have joined this um, uh, lecture. It is a uh, fantastic uh, opportunities, and this day is matching very well with the uh, content what we are going to uh, tell and share with the audience of the session. Today is uh, 3rd December, International Day of Persons with Disabilities. So the greetings of this day to the audience of this session. So over decades working in the community, I have seen this develop into celebrations, even not only in the community, throughout the world, to, uh, this day is being celebrated by many international organizations, also at the national entities. I, I have seen all these things in Facebook and in network. So this day is a very, uh, I think, uh, important day for one billion persons with disabilities in the world. Where, uh, uh, and it is like a, a celebration, like a, a festival, where the young, old, disabled, and people without disability really engage in the program and they greet each other. So they play music, songs, and drama with the message of disability rights. The solidarity gives them hope and confidence to move for an inclusive form. Unfortunately, one of my colleagues, Joshi Muddin, he is a visually impaired person, joined my team as a human rights promoter nearly 15 years ago. He was a fantastic community mobilizer. He has died three days ago. I ought to say, it is a systemic killing because he lost a job from a donor-funded employment project. He was passing a hard time economically with stress and anxiety. He has fallen from the roof, but there is a possibility he has taken his life. I have seen similar cases many times that disabled people have lost their life. I have to pay uh, my tribute to him, taking 30 minutes silence. 
Okay. So it was actually 30 seconds. Uh, and this year focus is on leadership, development and participation of persons with disabilities with a view to securing an inclusive, accessible and sustainable post-2019 world. Actually, it's not only post-COVID, during the COVID, the COVID has not gone. And I think in this whole process, people with disabilities should exercise their leadership and participate in policy and discuss and discussion and program design. The, today, I'll try to answer three questions. The first one is international development disability inclusive? Second one, how disability treaty contributed to the international uh, policy and program? And third one, we are going to to do a, a new uh, new way of working, uh, decolonization. And so before that, I'll uh, talk about how uh, the disability movement and participations of people with disabilities is at its moment. So the foundation of uh, disability movement is nothing about us without us. But there is a uh, uh, questions and I think uh, clarity we need that is hot about their leadership and participation. So the disability movement is looking for, they're fighting for meaningful participation of persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. Other side, there's a big questions about the cost capacity of persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. So, but what disabled people are asking, I think there is also a gap that it say that is meaningful participation of persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. How many disabled people are organized? One million, two million, even 10 million, but there are more than one billion disabled people in the world and they're not organized. So why we are talking about those people who are only organized? Participation of disabled people will be everywhere, at their home, in the community, in the state department, and any decision-making process. So I think we need to think in a broader perspective and bring everybody in that discussion that is their participation is ensured everywhere from home to community to the national level. And the capacity of persons with disability and their representative organization. Every day or week or month, I talk many disabled people. I see their enthusiasm, their vision, their aspiration, how they want to see change in their life and they want to contribute in changing the society. I worked with them very closely 30, 20 years in Bangladesh. And I have seen huge opportunities and huge uh, achievement of these people according to their uh, capacity and, uh, and abilities. So when we are take or very often tell that is DPOs or disabled people's organization don't have capacity, I think there is an inability to understand the people's power. And what is people's power? I'd like to share with you uh, now. So there is a uh, Two models was the medical model of 
disability and the social model of disability. So before people has been, uh, uh, disabled people has been seen of their disability, not their potential or that as human being. So at that time, medical experts and professionals were actually taking the decisions and the, and the whole development model was developing, uh, was developed in that direction. But then new ideas came that the social model of disability that views disability as a social construct rather than an individual one. So social change is the primary solution for our aims. And 27 years ago, I joined an incredible organization as Duncan told, that is ADD International. And that organization's focus on social issues, not medical or rehabilitation issues. And I was, my background was in economics. So I, I really found this is a place uh, where I should contribute and follow. And in that social change, what we practice, that is organization, empowerment, and tough transformation in the society. So individually, a disabled people cannot do much, but when they're organized, when the power of individual together, they can do a lot. And then their empowerment process start, they discuss their issues and then take, they take action to transform and to make change in the society. So it was difficult in those days to establish this approach in the mid nineties because disability organizations were implementing community-based rehabilitation prescribed by WHO. And in Bangladesh in those days, microcredit was the panacea for disabled people, for the development. So in that situation to establish a, an organization of disabled people for social change, without services or having access to microcredit or rehabilitation. It was a real challenge, but it has been possible. Uh, and many development workers, practitioners also thought they cannot uh, form their uh, groups. It was very, uh, they are not uh, convinced, but that, that remains the case today. That is now it has been proved and it, disabled people can form their organization easily anywhere and everywhere. Uh, and now I can see. But for doing that, it needs very different sorts of skills because I'm telling that how I have made changes in Bangladesh and what were the things required. Because the lived experience is very much important. Because when I, as a disabled person, went to the community first time, they saw like a role model. They, called, they saw that it's another disabled person had changed their life. So it is uh, his life. So it is also possible. And when I have recruited people, disabled people, I gave more focus like Joseph Martin, who has died a few days ago. And, and they become uh, the ally of, and, the, and the friend and the change makers in the community. And what is required, acceptance by the community. So that without acceptance in the community is very difficult. And high level of trust and excellent facilitation skills, those are the things is required to mobilize people in the community. And uh, so now I'll give my presentation uh, that, that something what I have done uh, before, uh, because I'm talking in front of the professor of practice. So my presentation is also about practice, what I did and then from that experience. So in 2000, uh, 2006 is the year 
when CRPT was adopted in the uh, even in general assembly. So before that, we normally used to do development work, community development work with the disabled people. And after that, there is very much focus on rights-based approach of disabilities. So when at the, uh, I, as I, as Duncan told, that is I my focus was on grassroots disability movement, and for any movement that needs a structure. So I organized 30,000 disabled people in 27 districts, 200 self-help groups, and uh, 1,200 uh, self groups, because that is the unit for making change. And then uh, 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 there's a uh, district level federations and 200 DPOs, some of them, half of them are registered with the government bodies and other are not, are not registered, but they have formed their organization. And there is a two national federations on his of all disabled people and another was on, on, on women with disabilities. And I found that social mobilization is self-esteem. Unless they feel that, then it is very difficult to interact with the system. So self-esteem, social interaction, and the social function. Through that way, there's many different interventions and actions have taken by uh, people with disabilities. And the impact was like, uh, uh, people with disabilities are respected in the community. Children with disabilities are uh, admitted in, 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 in schools. And that time, MDGs was not disability issue. But in Bangladesh, we worked with this government to include disability when they have developed their poverty generation strategic plan for the implementation of SDG. Now, SDGs are disability issue, but in those days, it was not that. But because of the, uh, 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 our work and, and we failed that it's required, so it is happened. And we collaborated with other movements and through that way, it is a social mobilization. And, they, and I think I could say whole uh, 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 other stakeholders were engaged. And we also engaged uh, the power holders, the, the, the president, the Prime Minister, the Speaker, Minister, and many different level of uh, people, they joined the, the, the events where disabled people were uh, expressing their uh, aspiration, their aim and vision, and the heart they wanted, and they uh, claimed their rights. Through that way, I think there was a huge changes in the society and even the government policies. But the question is uh, whether that has made uh, uh, huge change uh, in the in the in, in the overall policy spectrum or or, or, or the uh, global policies. So there is a twin track approach and for disability development. The on track was supporting disability specific program mainly led by persons with disabilities, DPOs, OPDs as imams. They wanted to access donor funding, but intermediaries or some other organizations have more privilege than DPOs or disabled people's organization. So till now, disabled peoples are not having access to that donor funding. Some money has gone, but it is it is a, a peanut in the, in the ocean or a drop in the ocean. So I think now the donor agency also think, should think how they can address uh, uh, the requirements of uh, disabled people's organization. And that track is actually for disability specific program, raising disabled people's voice and participation. Another track, uh, track of um, twin track approach in mainstream of disability. 
So any organizations, the NGOs, INGOs, government bodies, uh, they should include civil people. I don't think that is, it has happened at that level, it should be in the last 30 years. So I think uh, I must say there's a big change and achievement is there, but there's a long way to go. And then when we have kind of got the convention that is uh, uh, CRPD, Convention of the Rights of People with Disability, this is the first convention of human rights treaty of 21st century, century to promote and protect rights of people with disabilities. 182 countries ratified the convention and they are obliged to follow it. The rights of persons with disabilities have been enshrined in the CRPD. So they are, uh, uh, they are protected under their rights. It has given its strength to the policy advocacy. It is a comprehensive treaty, foundation for developing disability policy and strategy. That has happened later on at the national level and even internationally. I'll tell you about that. So disability rights is, uh, uh, a, as I said, that is, um, it, it, uh, uh, it has been ratified by UNCRPD. But I think it, if we see some of the uh, events it happened like uh, COP26, I don't think that has been reflected or the global leaders talk about this. I think I can tell it about that later. And I think CRPD is being implemented, that it has to go to the grassroots level, to the national level, the local level where disabled people are uh, is there. But I think we need to work on this issue. That's why I say there's a democratization of implementation process of, of CRPD. And global inclusion, because I, that is how CRPD is implemented, a contribution in the global policies. 2030 uh, agenda or, uh, or sustainable development become visibility inclusive. That's a huge achievement. Yeah. So, and following that, there was a Commonwealth Summit or Chogam in 2018 that also included uh, disability agenda. So, it is also a, another uh, a success. And the Global Summit, Disability Summit mobilizes as the globe, as many sector, UN, many government departments, donors, civil society. It's a huge success uh, uh, for uh, 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 bringing disability on the board. And that has happened based on the, uh, on, on CRPD. But this year I was also engaged in that press process, seven G7 summit, it is not that much is, is, is discussed or included. Climate summit, it is very much disappointing. So I think some achievements we have seen, but recently we see this momentum is weaker. Like if you see that uh, uh, is a uh, global uh, Glasgow Pact uh, or that uh, of the agreement, and it's a whole ten-page documents. There is nothing about disability, and uh, nearly uh, more than. Uh, 90 or 200 countries are represented attending that meeting. No one talked about disability. Even other civil society organizations also did not talk. We also worked with the uh, with the presidency of uh, of this uh, uh, of this uh, of UK because uh, it is held here. I, I don't think that is uh, 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 disability issue was perceived well or even presented. So as it was in Commonwealth Summit or even the uh, Disability Global Summit on Disability. Uh, 
So I think uh, uh, we have missed the opportunity, but we don't want to uh, lose hope. The presidency is, UK presidency is also for another year, and we'll continue our uh, advocacy so that the next COP include disability and civil society of UK and internationally are working actively on these issues. And I found that it's, uh, uh, everyone found the global media covered that news that is Israeli minister was not able to attend the uh, first day of the meeting because of the inaccessibility issue. I think that's same because uh, every event has to be inclusive and accessible for all. So some, some of the barriers are there. And I don't think that is that policies as related to disability was really uh, uh, reflected or uh, implemented in those events. So even the Israeli minister mentioned that is, we talked about accessibility and the rights of persons with disability, but in life, we need to implement all these conventions and the regulations. I think that is also true for every country or uh, the program what we have developed and, 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 and working. So policy having policy is great, but that is not enough. It has to be implemented. Without implementations, their life will not change. And it will be not, not implemented unless there is a strong disability movement, unless people with disability participate in any policy diverse, unless there is a leadership of people with disabilities is developed so that they can be in the right place, right program, and take this issue. So that's why to this year's a theme of disability, uh, uh, international disability is uh, uh, leadership and, 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 and participation. But unfortunately, if it happened, even during the COVID time, or uh, even post-COVID, or now we have seen many disabled peoples have lost jobs like just in, in in, in Bangladesh or Asia and Africa, I have some discussion, even in, the, in this country. And, and if any uh, leadership development processes, there some, somewhere it has been uh, stopped. So that is, I, everyone, we should work, that is disabled people, uh, 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 people have enough space to represent, to raise their issue, and to make the policy and program more disability inclusive. So that is the ultimate uh, expectations. Uh, from the uh, from from the development community. So for that, what we need to do? So for disability inclusive policies or inclusive practice, that is evidence. Data is very much required. Often we say that if people are disproportionately disabled people are disproportionately affected by COVID or climate change. What that statement mean? I think for that we need robust evidence to visualize that is. They, how much they are vulnerable. Second one is learning and uh, causes of inclusion. Often people are being excluded. So I think we need to learn how and why it is happening. And intersecting disability with other social factors. Very often we say that is inter-disability inter intersecting with gender or poverty or ethnicity. So I think we need to, even, even race. Uh, in, uh, on a UN meeting I attended, and from uh, ethnic minority group from uh, Australia, so said intersecting of disability and race is also very important. And because it happened, it is happening. In the, this is not this is an issue in the developing world, but certainly that, that an issue of the developed world, and that stopped disabled people's progress or participation or developing. Lives. So intersectionality, 
we have to think from different angle and we have to stop those things. We have to eliminate those things so that disabled people can grow equally like others. And as engaging people with disability, participation is also engagement. Enhancing capacity of OPDs on climate and other issues. Capacity, yes, disabled people's organized to have limited capacity. Everyone has some capacity. So we need to uh, work with them and enhance. And without enhancing, stopping them or excluding them is also not fair. So I think we need to work to capacity what they have. We should recognize, we should respect, and we should give input and take programs so that that can influence, uh, that can increase. And influencing the influencer, often we, go to influence policymakers, but sometimes we need to work with others who has even more influence than us. So we have to be, disability movement has to be more strategic. And working with and networking with other excluded groups, like women, LGBT community, or children and youth. Through that way, I think when will attend. So it should have universe. This time, no, in the COP26, no other groups talk about this. Uh, we have to be in the same platform so that our agenda is same on the broader issue. At the same time, we should have our own specific agenda and, uh, and work. Now, uh, the sector is going to work on disability inclusion and, and that uh, on the path of decolonizing. So then my question, are now they are colonized? What they're going to do? Because uh, I think uh, at this moment, I think international development is very much confused actually how to work with disabled people. Often we say their lived experience is required, but their voice or their participation is also barred. So I think this is an area still we have to think and see that is how it's functioning and working and how we the disabled people or the disabled movement or DPOs can work together to develop a right model so that it can work for disabled people in in global south and also the organization who are working in the global north so that we can reach the ultimate goal of a fairer society inclusive society and sustainable society for one billion people with disabilities 80 percent of them live in the developing country so we are 80 percent the majority of the world so our voice should be here our participation should be here in any developed model is developed or any policy is framed or any, any program is designed. I don't think it is happening. So I think we need to work together so that we can uh, achieve those things. And when we say that is, OPDs are often dependent in, in developing countries, but I think they're also frustrated. That is the way I, I, I very often I interact with disabled people or recently I did talk with Afghanistan or Pakistan, even Africa and Bangladesh. So I, I, I see that is there is a, a, a frustration about developed. They could not do this thing. So I think three of A's I identified for disability inclusion. We should give attention and try to understand. Because capitalism <laughs> is the main thing. Yeah. Bushard, uh, three minutes, is that okay? Fantastic, yeah. So I think ableism is very often people are talking and, and discussing, and that is how we can have anti-ableism uh, program. So it is not targeting an individual person, but it is a practice, it is happening. 
that undermined the role of personality. That attitude and practice looked down and discriminated. So that is, I think, if when abilities interact or intersect with other social uh, disease, I must say, or social uh, dimension, then disability could become more prominent. And then allies. It is difficult to distinguish the role between allies and activities because sometimes uh, allies are uh, working or taking the role of OPB. So I want to say allies should not be the enemies. They should be real friend of disability movement so they can work together. And amplify the open disabled people's voice is taken because instead of being, taking the, uh, uh, ensuring their participation, people amplify them, their talking on behalf of them. I think this is that we are living in the 21st century participation of people with disabilities, what we are talking. So I think we should ensure their participants and their voice instead of amplifying. And aid agencies, they also have big roles. I think instead of going to traditional implementation approach, they should find out the right approach so that they can lead to people with disabilities on the ground or how it can be effective. Certainly it is possible uh, to work and find a place that need to be part by the aid agency. And abstaining, people become tired. So they're attending in many meetings because this meeting and that means consultation is going on and OPDs are participating. But that, it is not a way. It needs uh, meaningful participation. It needs uh, their actual, uh, I think, uh, the, uh, uh, engaging them and give them responsibility and to implement the, the programs or policies. So they should take part like other uh, development action. So those are the things I think we need to think carefully. And I think we should address those things and bring disabled people in the prawn, not in the front, so that they can participate and their leadership go and implement the program or access. So that's my presentation. Thank you very much for listening to me. If there is any question, of course, there is a question and answer. I'll be very happy to give further credit. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rajar. Can I now uh, pass over to uh, Tahas? Tahas, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Duncan. And uh, Mr. thank you for your uh, wonderful overview. Um, I will be sharing very specifically on um, the, the the gains and the the point we are at from where Musharraf uh, has provided us. Um, so the the sustainable development goals, unlike the Millennium Development Goals, include disability, um, and they include them many times. And I wanted to ask if the phrase leave no one behind applies to people with disabilities, specifically in humanitarian action in the sphere of mainstream NGOs. Disability is an evolving concept and it has three uh, elements for disability to exist. First, it is an impairment. It could be either physical or uh, invisible. So the, the, the topic of neurodiversity would, would include 
would fit into the framework of empowerment. And then the other component is an individual factor. So whether the person is of a certain economic background, whether they're of a certain um, sexual orientation, uh, gender, etc. And so those two factors, the empowerment, the individual factors, and then the barrier. So barriers are multifaceted. So there could be attitudinal barriers, which often are in the framework of uh, stigma, people's perception of what can, what what one person can and cannot do. It could be physical, which often is what society thinks of disability as like a physical barrier, but that's not the only thing. Often it's actually attitudinal barriers. And then the other is institutional. So these are the legal frameworks that we have at an organizational level, at a donor level, or at a national level. So the kind of policies the government may have to open the scope of participation for people in public life or not. Um, so those, the combination of those things is what enables somebody to either be disabled or not. So I often give the example, so I identify as a person with a disability and I go with the phrase as a disabled person because I think it's a social issue. I am both a black woman and I have a visible disability. I am a wheelchair user. And when I am in an environment where the physical elements are removed that cause barriers coupled with people's attitude and their approach, then I do not consider myself as disabled. But when I shift into a different environment and there's stigma, there's people's ideas of what I can and cannot do, then I do become disabled. But the interesting variable is that my ability to walk doesn't change, only the environment does. And in humanitarian action, that is a really important principle because the barriers to accessing humanitarian services are purely based, in my opinion, on how humanitarian providers and service providers and donors frame and design interventions. So the barrier is whether the intervention is inclusive of these various aspects of the whole element of the human being, identifying their gender, their sex, their socioeconomic status, and their physical or cognitive uh, impairment. And oftentimes, humanitarian sector has had kind of a gray area in this. And I am going to look at two dimensions. One is in 1998 conflict, where I myself, as a disabled child, was left in a conflict zone. I was left behind. And that is why the phrase of leaving no one behind is so powerful. And the stories we hear and the data shows us, whether it's from Syria or Nigeria or Bulahara in Ethiopia or in uh, Gadea or Guji, the, the story is always the same. The people with disabilities are the first to be killed. They are four times more likely 
to be killed actually, both in conflict and natural disasters. Secondly, especially women with disabilities, in non-conflict zones, they're 10 times more likely to be abused. And in conflict zones, that increases to 50% chance of being sexually exploited and abused. Um, people with disabilities are often seen as invisible. And so when you couple that with the loss of family dynamics, which happens in humanitarian emergencies, so they are separated from their caregivers, their, um, their support system, and then of course the obvious of the environmental destruction, which could exacerbate one's impairment, then the vulnerability increases. So people with disabilities are not inherently vulnerable. However, these conditions and inaccessible or lack of inclusive design in humanitarian intervention makes them even more vulnerable. But it's not because they're disabled alone. Um, so I, I want to share this photo of me where when I was in the war in the 1998 Ethiopia war, I was living in an orphanage and I was being raised by nuns and they said, you know, we want to carry you, but it would just be too hard. And why risk everyone else's life? I mean, that's, that's a fair question, why? And that is what humanitarian emergencies mean, that we live really drastic and extreme human circumstances. And when you are in an environment where you lost your home, your family, it's survival of the fittest. And so I remember that very clearly. And so now I had hopes that the advocacy the generation before me have done, Judy Human, Charlotte McLean, Musharraf, allies like Ambassador Peter Vroomen, donors claiming that they are so, so supportive of the rights of people with disabilities. But more dangerous is mainstream NGOs who profit on serving the most vulnerable, like me, in this photo. How many people are still experiencing the situation today? That's what I want to examine. We made gains, as Musharraf has explained. We have fantastic roadmap of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, global summits. We have guidelines on inclusive humanitarian action. We have days like today where agencies claim, again, they support and they serve people with disabilities and they prioritize them. But I want to know, how is it on the ground? And how are we monitoring the implementation of these policies? Oftentimes, the argument that is used by mainstream NGOs for not being disability inclusive is that it's just so expensive or 
somebody else does that, you know, like the government through social services, which is by my favorite, favorite argument. Like NGOs are there because oftentimes governments are not able to provide such services. So why would we think they're able to provide social services for disabled people, but not for non-disabled people? So there's just abdication of responsibility of serving people with disabilities. And another one is believing that it is not their obligation. Um, but of these four arguments for why mainstream NGOs do not serve people with disabilities, I want to analyze the topic of cost and how much does it really cost to be disability inclusive? Because that's actually the number one argument I have often encountered in the eight years of working in the field in Ethiopia within humanitarian sectors. So I've analyzed um, the US government spending on humanitarian agencies, but only humanitarian and only through the Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs. And I'm only analyzing these three NGOs because they are the biggest and they are often the first responders. And then they also cover the largest scope of uh, regional coverage within the country. So I've looked into the data from the US Overseas Loans and Grants database, uh, the sources on the bottom. And we will see that from the past 20 years, since all of these rights and declarations and international conventions have been done, um, how have funding trends changed? So we will see that in uh, the past 20 years, we've had three big actors within humanitarian response, and they've received uh, $2.9 billion only for humanitarian emergency and only from BHA. Um, and then the global recommendation for inclusive programming. And by the way, when I did the research, I did key term research to identify um, what kind of services were they providing. So did they include indicators like uh, a res reservation of budget to ensure um, reasonable accommodation, which is a fundamental aspect of disability inclusive programming. And, um, was there uh, monitoring? So did they have data and did they report to the donor? And then also what kind of mission statements and uh, how, how were these NGOs holding themselves accountable and how was the donor holding them accountable? So that, th those are the, the criteria for analyzing this information and why these three NGOs were selected. So we've identified almost Three billion in the course of 20 years. Um, and none of them had reserved funding for disability inclusive programming. And then the standard practice is you reserve three to seven percent. So to be safe, I I, I wanted to see of this 3.9 billion dollars, um, how much within the 20 years would have been allocated if they did include. Um, disability inclusive programming, which is one 
$116 million is what would all three of the NGOs would have had to reserve for them to be inclusive in their program design. So if the argument is that it's too expensive, but we see in this graph, is it really too expensive? Because if we look at it by year, that would have been like six, if we're to, to estimate a bit higher, it'd be 5.8 per year or six to be, high, to, be, to, be, to be on the larger scale. And that is only reserving 4%. So my, my argument becomes, is it, is it really a cost issue? And so we look again, funding expenditures, and we see in 2001, uh, up to 2021, without any allocation of spending for disability inclusive programming, but if we were to include disability programming of 4%, it would only be $116 million. So I just want to know, is this really a cost issue? And in my, just from this circle, I don't think it's a cost issue. I mean, how, how much do we, I, I can say from uh, having worked in these mainstream organizations, you spend, a fraction of that on renovations alone or um, retreats, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then the very principle is you don't put a cost on a human right to begin with. But I really wanted to debunk the argument that mainstream NGOs are not doing disability inclusive programming, programming because it's a cost issue. So again, I, I put this argument into a different framework. So the next thing becomes why is this not happening then? Um, and my argument is donors are not holding implementing partners accountable. Um, and we can again have these really incredible global summits. We can have new guidelines of how to do things, but I don't think there's a shortage of guidance of how to do things. I think there is a big shortage on accountability of mainstream organizations to recognize the rights of people with disabilities. And the slogan of leave no one behind is only going to be a lost promise because I can tell you from the past eight years, again, you hear people who often say, yes, I, I would love to have a job, but I can't, I can't. And then I'm asking why? And then you look at, at the assessments that the mainstream organizations do. They don't ask people with disabilities within the displaced camps or refugee camps of their voice. They're not included in data collection mechanisms. They're not considered in site management settings. So a great example is if, if, if there's a crisis and you have 3 million people displaced overnight, and then you're creating a campsite for 3 million people, why wouldn't you represent the voices and the needs of everyone within that community? But instead is if you can come to this place, we will give it to you. But we, the main, mainstream NGOs are not going the next step of saying, 
looking for those who are who are not visible. And oftentimes that is only going to happen if donors are going to ask it. So the same way with gender equity and monitoring, we had to ask how many women and how many men would be inserted in programming. If donors are not asking this, it is not going to happen. I think the implementation is only going to happen when donors, again, request it. But it's just going to be stagnant. The, the, the slogan is going to be a lost promise. The other thing is that mainstream NGOs don't consult people with disabilities and program design. So there is an important key factor, which is civic engagement, organizations of people with disabilities. If the US government is spending billions and billions of dollars in Ethiopia, and there is the Federation in Addis Ababa, and there are three key actors, and there is a new program to feed 33% of the population. It should be criminal that the organization of people with disabilities have not been consulted on the needs and the barriers that they face to accessing food. Where, where like it should be, it should be a criteria. It has to be. And it is on paper. The BHA guidelines say consultation with people with disabilities. They say disability disaggregated data. They say reserve a certain percentage of spending for disability related adjustments. But if you leave it at just, you know, hey, if you want to do it, you can do it. If you don't, you don't do it. And no one is ever going to do it. It has been the case in Ethiopia for the past 23 years. The way I've been left behind, 20 million people in Ethiopia with disabilities are being left behind. And there are Americans with disabilities who are paying tax dollars, and they are also being left behind. This is a global issue, and it is the responsibility of governments to take action and to move beyond phrases and lost promises. Because I have survived one war, and I am seeing a country falling into crisis in every corner from various elements. And COVID has shown the exacerbation of inequalities and pe people are being left behind, especially people with disabilities. In Dridawa, when COVID started, a man who had visual impairment was so ostracized that he burned himself to death because any of the COVID responses were not including people with disabilities. The cash transfer activities that mainstream NGOs were offering in Dredo were not serving people with disabilities. But to, to obtain the funding, they would say nice phrases like inclusive programming. And donors follow that as truth. But we need accountability. And one of the accountability is that people with disabilities are counted and people with disabilities become active participants in the designs of programs. And I would say a quota, if, if there is one enti entity that can propose 
uh, a project for $1 billion for the course of five years to feed 33% of the population in a country where there's 110 million people and disability is not included, then donors are becoming the ones who are purposefully leaving people behind. Thank you so much for your time. I am so honored to have had this opportunity to come back to my school. I find mentors to be an incredible way to get by. And so I'm, thank you, I'm, I'm thanking my mentors and my professors and my classmates. And I'm asking you all to please stop giving us false promises. People are being left behind. And now it's your responsibility to do something. Thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you both, Tehas and Moshara, for very, a very passionate presentation from both of you. Very, very powerful. But I'm going to have to wrap up now. It's the International Day for Persons with Disabilities. And I really like that phrase, people of determination, which we heard from the UAE. And it strikes me that Musharraf and Tehas are two prime examples of people with determination. And um, if that is the kind of people who are, who are leading the disability movement, then uh, we can expect some fantastic results, um, uh, even beyond what's happened already. So thank you very much, both of you, for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for coming on, for staying on. We are back next term with climate change and human rights organizing in Africa, the first two sessions. Otherwise, have a great break. And thanks again to our two speakers, Tahas and Musharraf. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.